Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. After 70 years on the throne, actually she was the longest reigning monarch in European history. You know, um, Louis XIV was king longer than uh, Elizabeth was queen, but he came to be king at age five. He didn't come into his majority for another decade or longer. So actually, Elizabeth was the longest reigning monarch over 70 years, and you know, she died on the 8th of September, age 96. And 11 days later, they laid her to rest. Uh, She had all the crown jewels uh, in the world. They didn't go in the casket with her. They're still in the Tower of London. But she had personal property. She had over 300 pieces of jewelry, rings, necklaces, bracelets, that sort of thing. But when they interred her, all she had in terms of jewelry were three things. Her wedding band, from her marriage to whom? Prince Philip. And two pearl earrings. She's a very humble and simple lady. And a lady of faith as well. Her coffin is housed in a stone crypt It's airtight, lead-lined, and she is embalmed to preserve her remains. Laid to rest in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle, the vault is over 200 years old. She she lies now next to her husband, Philip, and along with her dad, who passed away 70 years ago, and her mother that passed away 50 years after that. She was a widow for 50 years, Queen Elizabeth. The vault contains the remains of 25 other royals. The most notable, probably, is King George III. What do we know about King George III? Which one of the Georgies was he? Her dad was the sixth, what? The unpopular one, at least on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, the one against whom those colonials rebelled. The chapel was founded in the 15th century. Actually, the foundation was established in the 14th century, but it was built in the 15th century uh, under Edward IV, and it contained 65 royal coffins altogether. And what's the point? She was laid to rest with her what? With her father's. Now, not all of those were her fathers because she came from another line then later, of course. In fact, which at one time, I think, had been at war with Britain. But the point was she was laid to rest with her, with her fathers. You know, our story of the Scarlet Thread tonight goes from the Passover to the priesthood. From the beginning of the Exodus then to Mount Sinai where they're pronounced a kingdom of priests. And we'll hear about that, not next week, but the Sunday evening after that. Um, And it goes through where? 
It goes through the Red Sea. The story actually begins much earlier than that. It begins in Genesis 1, of course, but I think the point of contact for us tonight would be Genesis, the 50th chapter. And that's, we're not going to, you can open your Bible if you want to there, look at the very end. And that deals with whose death? Who dies at the very end of Genesis, the book of Genesis? Joseph. Joseph. Joseph, as far as we can calculate, was probably about 40 years old when Jacob, his dad, his father, and his brothers moved to Egypt, and they lived in the land of Goshen, which as far as we can tell was in the delta of the Nile River, probably the northeast part of the delta. And he lived, if you look at the end of that chapter, to age 110. So after Jacob came to Egypt with his sons, Joseph lived another 70 years. That's somewhat important to the story later. On his deathbed, he does a couple of things. He gives a blessing to Israel, and he also gives a directive. He blesses Israel by saying God is going to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham. And we find that promise actually when he was Abram in the 15th chapter of, uh, of Genesis. And there God promised that his descendants, this doesn't sound like a good promise. His descendants will inhabit the land, but then his descendants are going to be taken captive. They're going to be oppressed for how many years? That passage says 400 years. But in the fourth generation, they are going to then return to Canaan. And that promise then was passed on from Jacob to Joseph. In Genesis, the 46th chapter, God promised, had promised Jacob that this was going to happen and that Joseph was going to close his eyes. And two chapters later, that's what happens. As Jacob is dying and Joseph closes his eyes, Jacob passes that promise on then to Joseph in Genesis 48. And in Genesis 50, it says this. Joseph says to Israel, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you, and he will bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then he gives this directive. God will surely take care of you, in verse number 25, and you shall do what? You shall carry my bones up from here, and up being, of course, to Canaan. That's the beginning of the story. Well, we fast forward past what Joel uh, preached on last Sunday, the beginning of the Exodus and the Passover. The plagues have all occurred. We come to the 12th chapter of Exodus after that, and we find that Israel has moved from Ramses, which was a capital city in the Delta, in the northern part of the Nile, to a place called Succoth. And it says there in chapter 12 that there were about 600,000 adults, not including the children. Now, we know later from Numbers, the first chapter, a year later, the census was taken. That number has grown to 603,550, give or take, a little bit. No, not give or take, exactly. Uh, we think that, in fact, that number then in Exodus, the, uh, the 12th chapter, was only counting the males. 
At any rate, a large number of folks, a large number of Israelites, they'd grown prosperous, and you heard the story last week, so prosperous that, that uh, Pharaoh is concerned about their uh, virtually overrunning the land. Ramses was a large city of about 300,000. It had been founded in the 19th dynasty by Ramses II. Succoth, we don't know exactly where that was, but it was somewhere in the delta, in the, in the, uh, probably not far from the land of Goshen, probably maybe east by northeast on the way to, to, to Canaan, because, you know, there's a land bridge there. And then in the, ch the 12th chapter, going into the 13th chapter, God gives some directions. At the end of the 12th chapter, he tells them that they're to observe something annually based on what's just happened. They're to observe the what? The Passover. And then you come to the 13th chapter, and it starts by saying that they are to observe the uh, dedication of the firstborn. And there's a kind of long parenthetic passage which deals with the follow-on feast after the Passover meal. What's the follow-on feast after the Passover meal? You will observe this every year, the feast of unleavened bread. And then he gives instructions about the firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and very... Uh, exact precision. And then we come to the beginning of tonight's story. The road less traveled. They are about then to depart and go to the promised land. Their immediate destination was Mount Sinai, and the most direct route to that from Succoth was the Via Maris. That would take them through Philistine territory. So if you turn your scripture to the 13th chapter, I know it says 14. We're going to go back to 13. And take a look at verses 17 and 18. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hmm. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. So they didn't go the short route. They didn't go the direct route. Why? Well, we see it ran right through Philistine territory, and God was concerned that they'd see the, Phil the Philistines and do what? Turn and run and go back to Egypt. And he, I'm sure, knew what he was doing. They probably would have done that. Um, <clears throat> so what happens instead after he gives these instructions? They, they went by the longer route. Uh, there's a little bit more behind the story. What about the Philistines? Well, the Philistines didn't occupy Canaan at this time. Uh, they didn't occupy this territory permanently until about the 12th century, but they had outposts along the way, and they had designs on occupying Canaan themselves. They certainly would not have let 600,000 males, not to mention the rest of their families, pass through. And they had a formidable military force. You know, even after Joshua's death, after they had conquered much of Canaan, they did not conquer the Philistine territory, as you well know. And a little bit later in the 12th century, they were bold enough, the Philistines were, to attack uh, the Egyptians themselves. So they were a formidable force. There's an unstated second reason maybe regarding the Philistines too. God didn't have a beef with the Philistines. He didn't have a problem with the Philistines. His real beef, his real concern was with whom? Was with the Egyptians who had been cruel taskmasters. And he was going to take them to task. You see, the Philistines had not harmed uh, 
the, the Jews. Could God have destroyed the Philistines and made way for, the, for his people to go? Of course he could have. But he, he didn't have a problem with them. In fact, he had pronounced iniquity upon the people of the land, and they were going to be punished. Back in Genesis 15th chapter, he told this to Abraham. But it wasn't the Philistines. It was the Amorites. So God's not going to deal with the Philistines just yet. He'll do that later, we know. They took the longer way for another reason. All along this way to the Philistine frontier were a number of Egyptian military outposts as well. And that's not told us in the story, but that may have been a reason. So they took the longer way. They went from Succoth to Etham, as we will see in just a moment, and they headed in a southeasterly direction. They ended up on the east side of the Nile, between the Nile and the, uh, the Red Sea, just south of the Delta, in what is called the wilderness. Well, that's the eastern wilderness. Uh, but the word actually means steppes. Probably just to the north of the true wilderness, there was grazing land. So this was adequate then to accommodate their herds and their, their sheep and all for a while. And they went forward in what it says, martial array. That's a military term. Uh, you get this picture of a great military force. Were they a great military force? No. All it means is, the term means that they were numbered by 50s. They were organized for proper marching, and that was good, but they, and it may have looked like a battle formation, but it certainly wasn't. They weren't equipped, they weren't trained, they weren't militarily prepared. We don't find until 18 chapters later in Exodus 32, we don't find any mention of any military hardware, and it says then that they were armed only with short swords. So God knew what he was doing. He was not going to take this ragtag group of 600,000 with their families and all into the face of military might like the Philistines. You know, God knew that they weren't prepared for battle. God knew that he could defeat the Philistines, but he was about focusing on defeating someone else, and it was the Egyptians. So he wanted to have a greater victory and bring greater glory to himself and to Israel than just defeating the Philistines. And then we come to the next part of the passage, and that's why we started with Genesis, the 50th chapter. When you take a look at verse 19, Moses then took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped at Etham, which we just said a moment ago, on the edge of the wilderness, that is, the steps. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and led them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here we see the taking of Joseph's bones. How long had Joseph been laying in state or lying in state? Well, that's debatable. You know, in Exodus, the 12th chapter, it says that there's a finer, uh, uh, more precise dating given. We didn't read it a moment ago, but it's not about 400 years. It was exactly how many years? 430 years they, that Israel had abided in Egypt. When you look over in Galatians, the third chapter, Paul talks about that 430 years. And when he does, he says that the law was given 430 years after Abraham and his seed were in Egypt. So, was it 430 years from the time that Jacob then came 
with his sons during the famine, the second year of the famine? Or was it 430 years from when Abraham had gone first to Egypt? It makes quite a bit of difference. And in fact, Israel could have been seen to be in Egypt in the sojourn in the loins of Abraham. So there are two theories about this. One would be that it was 430 years after Jacob entered the land. And if that's the case, how long did Joseph live after that? 70 years? How long would have Joseph been in that sarcophagus? 360 years. Go back 360 years in our history. Where were we? What is this, 20 to back in the late 16th? That's a long time. But you know, it also says that they were going to come back in the fourth generation, and that might give some credence to the other theory, and that would be that it's dated from when Abraham was first in Egypt, and it's about 250 years after that that Jacob then comes to Egypt himself. And if you do the math there, 70 from 215, and if I can do it without looking at my notes... I think it's 145 years. That might fit more with four generations. What we do know is that Joseph's been laying there a long time. And it says at the very end of Genesis, the very last thing that it says, after he died, they did what? They did the same thing that they did with Elizabeth. They embalmed him. So his bones, but probably his bones encased in mummified form, the rest of the story is this. Joseph was buried later. Did Moses bury Joseph in the promised land? Go figure. No, why? He, he, he never got there. He saw it from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights. No, who buried him? Joshua. And in Joshua, the 24th chapter, we are told that he buried them in the field that Jacob bought. Well, in Acts, the seventh chapter, when Stephen gives his testimony, when he gives his about to be stoned, he said it's the land that Abraham bought. Well, in fact, what that means is it's that very land that he had bought for burial that passed on to Jacob, and Joseph is buried then with his what? With his fathers, very much like Elizabeth was. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. This is the first instance of this being mentioned in Scripture. It is really a visible presence of the Lord himself. It speaks about the angel of the Lord later in chapter 14, and that's another way of speaking about God. You see, it represents the presence of the Lord himself, Yahweh himself. The Lord is in the pillar. There's a very good reason that the Lord is in the pillar. Oh, he didn't have to be in the pillar. He could have been elsewhere, but to be present with the people, why would he be in a pillar of cloud, and a pillar of fire, so that it would do what? It would mask him. It would protect the people from his awesome Shekinah glory. And it fulfills God's promise to Moses that I am going to accompany you. I am going to be, you're going to be my messenger, but, and I'm going to speak with you. But I am going to go with you, and I will not depart from you. He, he never, as we see in this passage, removed the pillar from their presence. There's a practical application of this, too. During the day, the cloud not only gave them direction, but it provided some relief from the sun. And that's not just a kind of rational thing that we come up with. When you look at Psalm 105, 39, it says that it shielded Israel from the burning sun's rays. There were some other practical reasons. The fire did what at night? It illuminated their way. So by day and by night, this suggested that they were able to travel round the clock, steadily marching forward toward the promised land. 
This was sort of like a divine GPS, wasn't it? Because when it stopped, they stopped. And when it moved, they moved. And they followed God. In verses 1 through 4 in chapter 14, then we see that the Lord directs Moses. The Lord directs Moses. He's speaking to Moses. As far as I can tell, he tells Moses to say some things, but everything in this part of the passage he says to Moses. And that's important. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and to camp before Pihahiroth. Did I get it right? I think so. Pihahiroth. Between Migdal and the sea. Okay, those are the instructions. And then he goes on to say to Moses, You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians, and, will, and, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So I'm not sure that all of Israel heard the rest of that. He says, tell Israel to do this. And then he goes on and he explains, and the quote ends then right there, when they'll know I'm the Lord. He explains this to Moses. Moses is God's leader that talks with God, and Moses knows the heart of God, and Moses knows the reason why this is going to happen. You see, what God did, I think, was he showed Israel the way to go by the, pot, the pillar. Everybody saw that. He told Israel what to do through Moses, but he told only one person why he was doing it, and Moses knows that. You know, Psalm 103.7 put it this way. It gives us some insight to what's going on here. It says, And he made known his ways to Moses. He made his acts known to the children of Israel. You know, Moses has got an intimate relationship with God. Blessed are those who fear the Lord and they know the secrets of God is what's going on here. There's a radical change in direction. This probably means that, it means that they probably moved to the northeast to their third encampment at Pihahiroth. This is the place where the sedge grows is one meaning. Another meaning is, out of Akkadian, it's the mouth of the opening of the canal. What it may have been, it may have been a, a canal barrier, kind of a frontier barrier for, against invaders where there were guarded points where only certain people were allowed to go through. They went right up to that point, maybe near the Gulf of Suez, between Migdal and the sea. And Migdal means tower. It's very possible that not far from there was a fortified Egyptian frontier town. Camp before Baal Zephon. When you hear that word Baal, that's an indicator that this is not an Egyptian name. That maybe formerly or it was on the border of what kind of territory? Canaanite territory. Because, of course, Baal means Lord and Zephon means north. Probably an outpost earlier from Canaanite frontier territory called the Lord of the North. What we do know is now Israel looks like it's wandering to Pharaoh. They are backed up against the Red Sea with the wilderness to their south. And the immediate result is that Pharaoh thinks that they're lost. They think that he thinks they're wandering, that they're boxed in. He obviously has an extensive network of spies that keep him informed of every movement of the, of the Israelites. And what we do know is this. God is setting a trap. He is luring Pharaoh. He's hardening his heart. Another way of putting it is Pharaoh is being duped. 
he's being drawn into this trap. We read earlier uh, the passage that Alan read about a trap being set. Well, in this case, it was for Pharaoh. God will harden Pharaoh's heart to pursue Israel. His ultimate plan is that he will be honored. He's going to be honored through Pharaoh and his army. What does it mean? It means that he is going to have victory over them. Now, what happens here is the humiliation that Egypt had, uh, had experienced before was a humiliation really of the leaders, of Pharaoh and his leaders. Now that humiliation is going to be shared also by the army because what God is going to do is he's going to bring around about military defeat and through their humi humiliation, he is going to be glorified. You see, nothing, nothing surprises God. He knew what Pharaoh was going to do next. And in verses 5 through 9, we see, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart. There you go. There it is. His heart's hardened toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and he took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses, that's the cavalry, and the chariots, that's the armor of Pharaoh, and his horsemen, there's the cavalry again, and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. So what's happening here? How was Pharaoh's heart hardened? Well, economically, they've lost a huge labor force, 600,000 males above the age of 20, a huge labor force. Who's going to build their pyramids? Who's going to build their fortifications? Who's going to supervise them? Who's going to make brick without straw? <laughs> There's also a military concern here. 600,000 leaving your territory into Canaanite territory, and the Canaanites have always been a threat to the Egyptians. What if they recruit them as, a, as part of their army? There's also then his view of God. You see, the Egyptians, as all the pagans, had a view of God, gods as not being all-powerful. This is just another god. He was particularly powerful in the ten plagues. But you know, gods are capricious. Gods are inconstant. You can't rely on the gods. Perhaps this god, maybe what's happening here is that their god has done what? Abandoned them. They're wandering around lost. And so probably he thinks that they are unprotected and vulnerable, and he can go back and do what? Do you think that Pharaoh's goal is to slaughter the Israelites? Does that make sense? Oh, he's going to have to kill some, probably, to take them. But what, is real, what do you think his real intent is? Probably to take them back. A huge labor force. Pharaoh's role in this is that he did not personally engage in battle. You notice that he took his people with him. This is what it's talking about is he's talking about his servants and his officials, not his army. The army advances with the chariots. The army advances with the cavalry. The army advances with the foot soldiers, with the officers over them. But apparently, Pharaoh was not in the ranks. It's just like any king. He was in the back. He did draw near to Israel, but when you look at the succeeding account, you never see Pharaoh mentioned in any of the successive engagement. It's, it's always what? It's Pharaoh's army. It's Pharaoh's chariots. It's Pharaoh's horsemen, his cavalry, but not he himself. And the Egyptians pursued a well-equipped army. The Hyksos had brought uh, 
uh, chariots with iron wheels into Egypt sometime in the 15th dynasty, back in the 17th century. They've been around a long time. He selects the 600 select chariots probably to be in the front with his officers, and there's no telling how many were behind. There were other chariots. There were probably at least 1,000 chariots, maybe 2,000 chariots. This was like a modern blitzkrieg of armor that was descending upon Israel, along with the horses, the cavalry, and the army, the foot soldiers, an overwhelming military force is bearing down upon the Egyptians with their back to the sea, an impossible situation for Israel that they could not get out of. And God did what? He allowed it. He let it all happen because he knew how things were going to play out. What this meant was the miracle that he was going to bring about was going to be all the more powerful and all the more noteworthy. He wasn't just going to defeat a second-rate army of Philistines. He was going to defeat the first-rate power in that part of the world. And then we come to verses 10 through 12, when Israel freezes with fear. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened, so that the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said, to whom? And they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? Hmm. And, you know, they had made some of those graves. They had built some of those pyramids, hadn't they? So they know very well. Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? You don't find that quoted anywhere in the Old Testament before this. But apparently it happened. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, you know, uh, though it's not quoted in the Old Testament before this, what we do know is after he had shown them the three signs to convince the leaders to follow him. You remember the sign of the snake, the sign of the leprosy, the signs that he had shown them with the blood. And they had agreed to follow. Then what did Pharaoh do? He increased the taskmaster's cruelty over them. He had them make brick without what? Without straw. And the people came to him and pleaded with him, why have you done this? You've made us odious in the sight of Pharaoh. And then God then reassures Moses in chapter 6. He says to Moses, he says, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm telling you I'm going to deliver the people. Now you go tell them. And when Moses goes and tells the people what do they do? They don't listen to him. In despondency and cruel bondage, they ignore him. So you see, they have, in fact, probably told him literally what is said here that they say, we told you, leave us alone. Don't take us out of Egypt. There's a better solution. It'd be better to live and serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, it's always better than to live, to live than to die. Is it always better? To live than to die? If that were the case, folks, we wouldn't be free today. Men and women throughout our history have put their lives on the line and died so that we might live in freedom. It's not always better to live than to die. Maybe they thought that Egypt would be okay. You know, they've been chastised by the plagues. Maybe they would be harmless and, and more humble by this and less harsh on them. Uh, go figure. <laughs> After all, it was the land of plenty, leeks and onions, and it was better to be a slave and to live there than to die in this, pardon the expression, 
God-forsaken wilderness. But they were mistaken at two points. First of all, the Egyptians weren't intent on killing them, I think. They were going to take them slave, and they were going to be more cruel than they ever were before. And secondly, they had forgotten what God had done in the plagues. They did not believe that God would come to their rescue. Remember, the first four verses of this chapter, God has spoken to Moses. They do not know that it is God that has hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is the first statement of Israel that they should have stayed in Egypt. And we find it time and time and time again. At least five more times in early Israelite history, they turn to Moses, four times they turn to Moses and say, it would be better if we were back there than here. And finally, even in, in, in Joshua says this, after they get into the promised land. And the Israelites were defeated at the battle of Ai. And Joshua even says, you know, it would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt What's the application of this? They had completely forgotten the mighty miracles of God's deliverance. We walk by what? Faith, not sight. But what is that kind of faith sight? Faith sight is this. It's good hindsight. Faith sight is remembering what God has done in the past to rescue us and to deliver us. Faith is not just willy-nilly blind faith. Faith is looking over your shoulder in the back and knowing what God has done before. And then when you turn around and you look this way, you know that he's going to be there. You see, when we forget what God has done for us, what happens is our imagination begins to run wild. We begin to imagine the worst possible scenario that might happen tomorrow. We lay in bed at night, sleeplessly tossing and turning, wondering what's going to happen. And we forget that God, time and time and time, has done what? He's been there. He's delivered us. And you see that kind of fretting and frustration turns to unbelief and unbelief turns to fear and fear paralyzes us and that is exactly what happened to Israel and then we look to blame somebody and it's usually not ourselves and then Moses gives this courageous speech I don't see any indication that God has told him to say this well what Moses is saying is on his own you see what Moses is willing to do is he's willing to take one on the chin for God he believes what God has told him. And what does he say? But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Wow, what a bold statement. Moses said this, I think, on his own. And it shows a contrast with, between their fear and his what? Their fear and his what? His faith. He gives two commands. Don't fear. In other words, trust God. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. This isn't a call to stand and fight. <laughs> it's a call to stand and what? Watch. Just watch what God's about ready to do. The application, folks, is you know what I'm going to say. Psalm 46. Sometimes God says to do, to do what? Be still and know that I am God. You know, we don't always have to be doing something to serve God. Sometimes what he wants us to do is to just watch him at work. <laughs> the reassurance that is given by Moses is the Lord will fight for you. Just keep silent. Moses knew they didn't have military training. He knew they didn't have the equipment. He knew they didn't have the weapons. He knew they were pinned in, that it was an impossible situation, but that God was going to win the victory. And then we turn to verses 15 through 18. 
But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and, oh, uh, no, sorry, number 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel will go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. What he does is he repeats the same promise that he gave Moses in the first four verses. And then he, he, he gives them a, a command. He says that he is to do what? He is to raise his staff. What is this about raising the staff? It's the same staff that has done what? On seven occasions, it's performed. It, it, through, God, through it, God has shown them that he is capable of performing miracles. Wow. Um, the staff draws attention not to Moses. It draws attention to God. And the promised results of this are what? that the sea is going to part and they will walk through the dry land. There's a reaffirmation of Moses of what he said in the first four verses. Once again, Moses' faith is refortified. I'm going to use the Egyptians as an example, and I'm going to be glorified by that. And then verses 19 through 20. The angel of the Lord who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So you see the pillar of the cloud came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, and it gave light at night. Thus, the one who did not come near to the other at night. What's happened here? God has established a rear guard for Israel. He's moved from the front to the back, and he has established himself as a barrier of protection, a shield. Yahweh is our shield and our defender. The Egyptians are in darkness. They continue in Egyptian darkness. But he illuminates the camp because they're about to do what? They're about to go out in martial order, and it takes time for them to get their flocks and their herds and their kids and their families all together and to, to break camp. And during the night, they do that. They have time to do so. And then in verses 21 through 22, Israel passes through the sea. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Wow. He used an east wind, hot east wind. So was this a miracle? Better believe it. It was strong enough to divide the sea, extraordinarily powerful. The precise timing was by God at exactly the right time. And as we will see, the timing for it to collapse was exactly right. It was the same east wind that had brought the miraculous plague of locusts before in chapter 10. It was a suffocating, burning, searing, blistering hot east wind that was capable of drying out the ground. And all night it blew and it blew and it blew, and they didn't go through the mud of the seabed, they went on what? Dry land. This wasn't just a swampy sea of reeds. No. The word there is yom. It means sea. And every time it's used in the Old Testament, it means a large body of water. This wasn't just a little retainer wall of water. It was a huge homa, a massive huge wall in Hebrew. You see what God was doing. God opened a door for the poor. He opened a door for the oppressed. And we're told later, the Philadelphians hear this, 
When God says, when I open a door for you who are poor, no one can do what? No one can shut it. The Egyptians then are drawn into the trap and they're snared. God had set a trap and all the Egyptians entered the seabed. Surely the seabed is dry enough for the chariots to make it through with no problem. After all, look, 600,000 plus their families are going through now. But what happened? Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all of Pharaoh's horses and the chariots and his horsemen went in after them in the midst of the sea. And the morning watch, the Lord then looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into what? Into confusion. <laughs> he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters will, that they may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters were returned and they, they covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. What's happening here? In the morning, watch. Sometime between two and six, that's the third watch of the day. The Lord looks down and he sees what's happening and he confounds them. We don't know how he confounded them. He may have directly confused their minds. <laughs> he could do that. It could have been that the cloud descended upon them and they were in a what? In a fog. What we do know is this. In Psalm 77, it tells us that what else accompanied the wind? There was a torrential rainstorm that came along then with the wind. So you know what happened. The rain then hit the dry ground and turned it to what? Turned it to mud. Their chariot wheels swerved. They drove with difficulty. They swerved back and forth. You know, they were ensnared because their heavy chariots with their iron, iron wheels could not make it out of the mud. And then what do they do? They say this. God said it twice. I am going to be glorified in such a way that they will know that I am what? I am Lord. And what do they say? Let us flee because the what? The Lord is fighting for them. They admit it. He brings his glory out of the defeat of the Egyptians, but not just out of the defeat of the Egyptians. Who else is witness to this? When you look at the psalm that comes afterward in chapter 15, the song that Moses sings and the Israelites join in, the Philistines then are aware of this. And they know that the Lord is the God of Israel. And the Edomites and the Moabites and the Canaanites. So this was not just a witness to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. The Lord has sprung the trap. Pharaoh's army was ensnared. There are a few links to the scarlet thread here. The overthrow, the verb overthrow, is a cognate of the same verb that is used to describe Sinar, which was the region of the Tower of what? Babel, which was overthrown. The destruction is by what? Water, which is reminiscent of the destruction by the flood. Israel is liberated by the death of the males that are on the seashore, the male army, just as they had been freed by the death of all of the firstborn males in Egypt in the Passover. In the passing, passing through the sea, it's pretty obvious. That presages then another connecting point in the scarlet thread later when Israel is prepared to go into the promised land. And the moment that the priest 
feet hit the bed of the Jordan River, it turns dry. You see this scarlet thread runs from the Passover to the priesthood at Mount Sinai that we will see next week. And it continues then into the promised land. And then the Lord delivers Israel. The Lord saved Israel that day in verse 29. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, they did what? The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and what? And in his servant Moses. Just a few observations in closing. You see, there are some other connections with the scarlet thread here. Moses becomes a kind of savior figure to the Jewish nation, doesn't he? We know later in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, that they promise that there is going to come a prophet like unto Moses in their midst. He is the what? Expected one. And when Jesus stands before the high priest, and the high priest asks him before his crucifixion, he says, are you the expected one? Jesus answers very firmly, yes, I am. One of the great I am statements of the New Testament. There's another thread here. Their faith here becomes a model for New Testament faith because we know in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it says, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. This becomes a pattern for New Testament faith, but it's not just New Testament faith. What did God have them do in order to deliver themselves? Stand and watch. What did they do to deliver themselves? Obey. Did they fight the Egyptians? No. Were they saved by their works? No. They were saved by their what? By their obedient faith and following. And that is New Testament faith. We're saved by the grace of God through what? Through faith. The passing through the sea presages baptism as well. This isn't just Jim Spivey thinking that that sounds kind of neat to say. It's scriptural. For in 1 Corinthians the 10th chapter... Then Paul tells the Corinthians, they were baptized into Moses and drank spiritual water in the wilderness. And that rock from which they drank was Christ. Even then, even many of them displeased him and died in the desert. They drank from the rock that is Christ. And the purpose of God was to draw them away from idolatry to himself. The obvious implication is those who have been baptized in Christ, then you see, drink what? Living water. The scarlet thread continues. And finally... Israel rejoices. We're not going to read it tonight, but where does the rejoicing come? Chapter 15, the song of Moses and the dancing of Miriam. And if there is a red thread, scarlet thread verse in all of this, it's found in verse number 13. What is the scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation? What is the red thread that begins with an R that runs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. Redemption. Verse number 13. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The red thread continues in Israelite history. Time and time and time again, at least about a dozen times in the Old Testament, there's reference, not just to the Exodus, but specific reference to God's victory at the Red Sea and overthrowing the Egyptians and delivering 
Israel. And the final red thread is this. It's the analogy of salvation. It's obvious. God uses Moses to deliver Israel from physical slavery and abuse and to save them from the hands of the Egyptians. And God brings the new Moses. He brings one that is greater than Moses. He brings the expected one, Jesus Christ, to bring freedom from spiritual slavery and sin and death. And Jesus then said to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a what? Slave to sin. But I tell you, if the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. The, th the red thread continues. Next week, it'll be Chris Mon's service, and the week after that, I think it's Chris Gardner is going to be speaking then about um, the priests at Mount Sinai and a nation, a kingdom of priests. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 926 1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.